Welcome to The Watch, brought to you by AT&T, reminding you that when it comes to wireless networks, just okay is not okay. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Watch. Me and Andy talked about a lot of things. We talked about the new Nick Pizzolatto show on FX that's coming with Matthew McConaughey, a true detective reunion. We talked about Parasite, a movie that Andy saw in a very timely fashion. And then we talked about the first episode of Picard on CBS All Access. In the second half of the show, it's a discussion that I had with Juliette Littman over the weekend while we were at Sundance about the festival, about uh, what people were talking about at the festival, some movies that we had seen there, and just how we watch what we watch when movies and TV shows or documentaries get a little bit of buzz going from the festival and what would be the best way to find them and whether or not people should start thinking, studios should start thinking about a different distribution model for movies that are starting to get like a little bit of buzz coming out of uh, Sundance. Andy and I are recording a live show tonight in Hollywood in honor of the premiere of his of his, his television show, Briar Patch. Obviously, Briar Patch is airing February 6th. If you're not lucky enough to be in Los Angeles and come to see us tonight, you can listen to that episode the night Andy's show airs. So it'll be basically your your uh, recap episode, for, the, for lack of a better word, on that Thursday. So we're really excited to do that and can't wait to see everybody tonight who's coming out. So let's get into today's show. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, quite honestly, we're having a wardrobe crisis. It's Andy Greenwald. Should we focus on that or should we focus on other events of the day? This is a grab bag episode. I have a lot of stuff I want to get through with you. Okay. We got to talk about... Chris has that look in his eyes. It's all business. It's business month Tuesday, right? Okay. It's Tuesday. Classic Sorry Tuesday. for missing yesterday. I was... Uh, en route back from the mountains. I was in uh, Park City, Utah for a couple of days. We did a live rewatchables. What a flex if you had not been there for Sundance. Yeah, really, it would be weird if I was just there for the snowboarding. Mm-hmm. Um, Amanda and Sean both were trying to encourage me in their separate ways, which are quite different methodologies, mm-hmm. to go snowboarding for the first time. And I did not do that. Did, did they? No, but Amanda really wanted to ride the ski lift just to see, you know, the mountains and stuff. Does she know that you have to ski off of a ski lift? No, you can just take a ride. You can just you can do the whole whole loop because okay. I used to do that when I would go summer tobogganing in Vermont as a kid. You are a you are a legend. They do like the they wax the bobsled uh, tracks and you can ride these like plastic sleds down, man. Look, I just want everyone out there in real America who is giving Chris grief for not understanding the real purpose cruise of control? cruise control. Uh-huh. What do you know <laughs> about waxed tobogganing yeah. down Purple Mountains? Majesty? See you at Stowe Mountain, bro. Uh, so here we are. It's Tuesday. Isn't it, isn't it great that after 24 years, we're still learning about each other? How do you not know this about me? Well, you know, there. I was still going to Vermont when we first met. Yes. I knew. See, this is the thing. There's levels to this. Okay. So much like I knew that, you know, you were a competent backstop in yeah. your intramural days. Game manager. All of a sudden, pitch framing yeah. was your forte. Yeah. All of a sudden, last week. I learned that you were, you know, a king among five foot four men. Yeah, that's right. And so I didn't know the, you know, I didn't know the dedication. Similarly, I knew you used to go to Vermont in the summers, but in my in my understanding of it, and maybe this is just the content you curated for me, mm-hmm. that was the time for you to get just inordinately and uncharacteristically hype on obscure, uncanny X-Men stories. Yeah, well, I had a driver's license and a lot of time on my hands. And, and so, so this is when, Chris, people know the story, but this is when Chris would, like, drive into the town where there was a payphone to tell me that Cyclops was one of the chosen 12 that would, like, carry forth the seed of Xavier into the new era. And I was like, bet, I guess we're just going to be comic fans now. That's right. And I would just, like, you know, just get back into it and yeah. and, and practice my takes. And you'd come back and you'd be like, nah, man, I'm into wax tobogganing. So your revenge okay. is to leave me hanging until the very last second before our live podcast tonight mm-hmm. at the premiere yeah, we're of doing, your television show. Today's a double And I have podcast. asked you 73 times, mm-hmm. what are you wearing on Tuesday night? So great. And you keep being like, TBD, exclamation point. Well, there's a lot of You levels. have mm-hmm. the resources. You have mm-hmm. like people who work I under your umbrella. I, I don't have an assistant. In the big Greenwald tent. Sure. There are people who are thinking about how you look in a jacket. Um, That's... Not fully true. I think that they probably, this is generally correct to assume that a, a man of a certain age uh-huh. can physically put appropriate clothes on himself. Sure. 
You just, you won't give me, you won't tell me what we're going to wear tonight. Well, and I just don't want to show up looking like <laughs> Neil McCauley from Heat. And you're just like. <laughs> I'm dressing like Wayne Grove. Yeah. Couple things. Mm-hmm. I'm sure our most dedicated listeners are like, this is classic Andy. He's just a chill bro up and down the board. He doesn't care about stuff like this. He doesn't stay awake with any kind of anxiety or Yeah, concern. it's not about the looks. So it's really it's just. It's about story. I just throw on whatever. Yeah. Because let the work speak for itself. Uh-huh. I will be honest for the first time with our listeners and say that's not me. I am very concerned about what to wear tonight. And, and, and you know, this is breakout. Fill the Walt Disney Hall downtown with the world's tiniest violin symphony uh-huh. orchestra. This is that weird middle ground that to be, a, as an aforementioned man of a certain age, is to know at once two things. One— <laughs> No one cares what we're wearing, and no one will Absolutely ever notice not. or comment on all, it. And all we yet, can do is fuck up. Two, uh, this space, this public podcast space, undefined territory. Mm-hmm. When I was at TCA, or when I was at TIFF, or whatever, you wear a suit. And as everyone knows, the Greenwald brand, suit with sneakers. I know. Everyone, everyone loves it. I know. This is perched a little bit between, you know, formal and casual. So I basically think that I'm going to wear... A FUBU tracksuit. Yeah. Yes. I am going to dress like Mace <laughs> circa 1996. That's right. Do I, you think Esmail would be disturbed if we showed up looking I, like the cover of Diplomats 4? I'm going to dress like Cameron, yes, but not Dipset era Cameron, uh, horse and carriage era Cameron. Good. I'm like going to really wear diesel. I'm going to wear uh, overalls with no shirt, <laughs> a, bandana. a bandana, and carry a large sledgehammer just to get my point across. <laughs> All I, right. What, what I'm saying here is. You're really, you're driving me crazy. I can't believe you would tell me. I'm, I don't know. I have a lot of clothes in my car. All right, look, everyone can know this. Tonight, people, especially who are, people are coming tonight to this Briar Patch event we're doing here in Hollywood, a lot of my good friends and colleagues are coming. Our costumes head, Risa Garcia, who is a wonderful person and a genius, will be there. And after we leave here, and before I go to the studio to get back into mixing episode 105, I'm going to her house mm-hmm. where she has a suit jacket that she had bought for me and fit for me for another press event. And I'm going to go try it on. This is a classic sword in the stone type tale. Okay. The jacket is Excalibur. I am Arthur. Uh Uh-huh. I guess you're Merlin adjacent. Me? Yeah. Yeah. What if I'm Lancelot? Oh, shit. Um, So so then when I have this secured, then you'll know. But, you know, do people come... This is a, we're an audio medium. Yeah, that's the thing is that like, I feel like I could wear what I'm wearing to work, but I just want to, I don't want to be the one guy who's like, who's dressed like a Wilco guitar tech. I'd like to. At a game, at a, at a night where like everyone else is wearing suits. I'd like to remind you that one of our guests tonight, and I think we can announce this, is our great friend, brilliant actor, Jay Ferguson. Yeah. Jay came to. Is he wearing a full Cowboys out like Zuba's outfit. Jay, Jay came to ADR last week wearing clothes. Okay, let me take that word back. That's a big word for what he was wearing. He was wearing a well-used Dead and Company t-shirt. <laughs> and he was wearing sweatpants that like were kind of like it was distressed. The whisper of sweatpants. Like sure. and and here's what he said to me. He had planned, he said, I opened up my drawer this morning and I looked down at my Dallas Cowboy sweatpants and I was going to wear those. So he put forethought into which sweats. And then he thought, no, no, they don't deserve it. (laughs) (laughs) So what I'm saying is he will likely have his hair in a top knot. It doesn't matter what we do. Okay. All right. I feel better now. I'm wearing a tuxedo. I have some stuff I want to talk to you about today. Mm -hmm. Number one is some news that came across my uh, wire this morning. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's the headline from The Hollywood Reporter. It's exciting. Chris, when I arrive here, Chris, late, Chris is sitting here with laptop open. He's got the, he's got the agenda set. I've got the map. Okay. Dateline day, January 28th, 2020. That's today. That's today. Mm-hmm. True Detective Reunion. FX orders Matthew McConaughey drama from Nick Pizzolatto. What? Based, Whoa. It's called Redeemer, a drama inspired by Patrick Coleman's novel, The Churchgoer. Quote, created by Pizzolatto, Redeemer stars Matthew McConaughey as a former minister turned dissolute security guard whose search for a missing woman in Texas leads him through a corruption and criminal conspiracy as his past and present impact and entwine around a mystery of escalating violence and deceit. 
Fantastic. Where do I put the tattoo on my throat? Or what does it say? Does it say Redeemer? Does, does lot, it say True Detective Reunion? Hmm. Uh, FX has the fewest letters. Yeah, that's true. Options. So I'll just do FX. Yeah. You got that. Um, I'm very excited for these guys. To wow. This essentially just sounds like what they would have done had they ever just done a True Detective season four together. Right. I support, I support Nick Pizzolatto. I, I think this sounds great. For everybody involved. Yes. I, I, I feel like you're, you're fishing. This is just First Reformed with guns. You're, like, you're, you're, great. You're fishing for something. First Reformed with, well, First Reformed with, like, a security nightstick. Yeah. Right. I'm sure he'll find a gun. Um, I don't think he'll be like, I only have this baton. How am I supposed to, Nick, how am I supposed to grapple with this Nick, escalating violence Nick, and deceit? Nick Pizzolatto's gritty reboot of Paul Blart is off yeah. to a rollicking start. <laughs> um, well, I think there are a couple things here. One is it's a pretty cool and aggressive play by FX. One thing that we haven't, well, I guess we sort of talked about it when it was announced, but this is this seems like the first shot in the across the bow of what new post Disney merger FX can right, be. Right, because they essentially, I mean, Nick, this is the end of his relationship with HBO. I would, I would imagine. Um, never say never, but it sure. certainly suggests that he was not under any kind of overall deal mm-hmm. because it would have ended up there. Potentially they bid on it and were outbid, which is also interesting. But does a deal like this happen before FX is on Hulu to the degree that they are now planning to be on Hulu? Right. Which isn't to say it couldn't happen because FX was obviously bagging gigantic stars left and right for projects like Fargo and this upcoming This Is America miniseries that looks great. But for someone like Pizzolatto, who has been granted an enormous amount of creative freedom at the place that is known for either offering or indulging, depending on your point of view, full creative freedom like mm-hmm. HBO, to go to a place like FX and be told things like, this is great, but we have to make sure to write five act breaks and you have to keep it at a 42-minute running time for commercials. Um, and maybe we'll do another version later uh, you know, for streaming. That's got to be creatively frustrating. And the kind of thing that... If that is indeed what happens, you know? Yeah, I mean, there are ways around those uh-huh. things. I mean, this is something that 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 I'm experiencing now too, where for Briarpatch, we're making two versions of every episode. We're making an act break version. And then there's one where Rosario drinks Snapple every five minutes. Well, that's, that's for kids. <laughs> that's for USA Kids. <laughs> then there's a seamless version that is what will live in the future when the show's streaming or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there are ways around it, certainly. But to be able to do it, it makes it more, it, here's what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is it fully makes it a more lateral move. I think FX was playing was paying competitive salaries to movie stars and to creators for a while now, but I think this is this is a big this is a big splash. It's a big deal. Um, okay, so that's the one piece of news I wanted to go over. Can we talk briefly about Sundance? Because you had never been before. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I think I had a very unique experience just because I had a couple of things I had to do, and then mm-hmm. obviously on Sunday the Kobe news happened, so that was sort of uh, the energy of that day kind of went. Went in a different direction. Uh, I only saw really one movie, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, it's it's like that first weekend is really packed mm-hmm. and there's a lot of parties and it's a lot of really competitive getting into screening stuff. And, you know, because of, like, the tr- theaters are sort of spread around this town. So there's right. a shuttle system that really works well, but you just kind of have to know how to play it and know exactly what time and, you're showing up and like where you're going. And so much of it is is aimed at the audience that's not there so that a movie like Zola, which is A24's big, mm-hmm. big release, plays the opening weekend. And it will continue to play over the next week. And yes. It has. Yes. But the goal is to have seen it first and have your opinion first and, and have share it your opinion. And right. Have it and have everybody come out and say, That's the this, is, this is it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, Sundance also seems to, I and mean, we talked about a, this a little bit on Big Picture, I think, but it, the, you know, the one thing that I saw that got acquired was this Andy Samberg comedy Palm Springs. I saw that for that a lot of money. I think Hulu bought, right? Hulu, it was, Neon is involved. Was Neon the, the people, did Neon make it or did Neon acquire it with Hulu? It was the biggest sale ever by 69 cents and Classy. it was uh, a, a joint announcement from Hulu and Neon. And Neon is for flush For $17.5 and a million. Dollars. Neon is flush because of Parasite. Speaking of which. Which we'll get to. But um, <laughs> six months late. What, was your read on it as a cultural event, I guess, or as an industry event? Because this is not new territory to say that, oh, it's not about the movies anymore, man. It's not pure. But who knows if it ever really was just about the movies. I can't but speak, you were experiencing yeah. it as a as a visitor 
not there to see all the movies and report back. Yeah, I think that there was probably a time when it was a lot more about independent films finding distributors. Mm -hmm. And now it seems to be a lot more about smaller distributors or even bigger distributors showing off their kind of high-end wares. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I mean, like in any one of those things, you're always going to just kind of be inundated with like the presence of corporations, Mm -hmm. which is what it is. I mean, it's 2020. I I don't really expect anything else. There's a lot of like Chase Sapphire nightclubs and, Mm -hmm. you know, it feels like you are a little bit in Futurama sometimes when when you're walking up and down the street and everything is just so heavily branded and stuff like that. But I guess that's what it takes to to put on an event like that. Were you invited to any gifting suites? No, I did not get to go any gifting gifting suites. What was your most exciting sighting, whether it was someone you spoke to or did not speak to? Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, going pretty much unacknowledged walking down the street. Really? Yeah, it was pretty good. Wow, what was he doing? Just walking. I don't even know. I don't even know what he was there for. Maybe he was just there to check out some shorts. I have no idea. Short films? Short films. Because it seems like it was cold. Check out some docs. Who knows? Um, that's another thing is that, like, as somebody who doesn't watch a ton of documentaries, I, I felt like, you know, there was a lot of, like, people who were like, this doc, this doc. I'm running off. Like, I'm seeing yeah. three or four things. Dick Johnson is dead seemed to be, like, the, the thing that people were most talking about. What's Sean that? was blown away by that. It's a documentary by um, this woman. Uh, I think her name is Kirsten Johnson. She made Camera Person. Okay. And it's a doc about her father. And it's grappling with the like the possibility of his or the likely you know the inevitability of his passing at a certain point, but it's supposed to be really like Yikes. inventive and creative and zany. Did Sean Fantasy go skiing? No. Has he ever gone skiing? Is he a ski? Lord? I think he's skied before, but Sean was like locked in, man. Sean was in the Matrix. Sean was seeing all the code. Yeah, yeah. Watching him at work in, at a movie festival and watching him like plot the, I'm gonna nail three today. I'm gonna nail four today. It's like really like wow. God, you can hear Jimmy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Parasite. I was about to say, what's it like to love to watch movies? Um, Greenwald, Guys, this is a, one of our great annual traditions, which is... I'm, I'm one for nine, baby. Which is kind of like... Spring training for Andy lasts 11 months of the year. <laughs> and then you get one month where he <laughs> becomes Kaye du Cinema. I mean, let's also frame this that the window opened. Like, the narrowest window suddenly appeared to see a film. Because Sunday night... Sunday night's outsider time. Sunday night's a time when my my wife and I like to like to cuddle up on the couch and watch Bill Camp and the rest of his merry band uh-huh. of, of uh, character actors. Of Uncocos. Solve, solve the crime. <laughs> yeah. And then I got a message from the Slopes saying Monday recording was off. Yes. You were traveling. Yes. No way we could do it. Don't worry about it. So I was like, you know that, well, two-hour window during which we were going to like maybe get up a couple times and get snacks and then talk, but also watch The Outsider. It's free and clear. It's free and clear, my bride. <laughs> Let's fire up this screener. And uh, Did your wife put a veil on um, to become married to cinema? There was. <laughs> she's, she, she's already an industry bride. Yeah. You know what I mean? Industry widow. Married to the game. Um, yeah, there was, there, was some, there was some light... Bong cosplay involved. You know, I dressed up as the train from Snowpiercer, the only other character from a Bong film that I'm familiar with. Uh-huh. There's a longtime Bong head, you know. A who, Bong ripper, you could who, even say. I, yeah. I love that. And, uh, yeah. you know, only Joe Biden loves trains more than I do. So when I found out that my two interests were colliding and that 2012 masterpiece, look, let's just focus on the present. Have you put your kids on any boards of directors recently? <laughs> <laughs> look, I watched, let's focus on the present. I watched Parasite. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying this because I am a, a lazy person with a lot to do. Do I have to see the other eight? Because this is the best movie of the year. One thing that's cool about you only seeing four movies this yeah. year and two of them being animated is that the other two, mm-hmm. you're just like, that's the best movie ever made. Booksmart and Parasite are two of the best movies so I remember liter- seeing. Literally, both reviews of adult mm-hmm. films that you've mm-hmm. given me, not adult films, but both reviews of films that are not... The other ones I share on Letterboxd. <laughs> ...are not children's movies. Mm-hmm. You have given unconditional two thumbs up, four stars. Oh, my God. Put this in the AFI Hall of Fame. I loved it. Does anyone else know about these movies? Yeah. <laughs> They're great. Yeah. Um, so you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? No. You haven't seen Marriage Story? No, have a screener, have Netflix. You watched the first 40 minutes of Irishman? Whatever episode one was. Uh-huh. Okay. Would love to see more. Would love to. Mark me down as 
interested. <laughs> like, you know, they have like three options on Facebook invite. Yeah. Interested in attending. Okay. We'll let you know. Maybe I'll wear a jacket. Maybe I'll wear a sweater. You don't know yet, Chris. I mean, I'm going to harvest this. This is a good identity for me. Man of mystery. Um, you love Parasite. Yes. And before, before, I know people have been waiting six months for me to say a movie they all love is great. Guess what, guys? Good call by you. You're right. I was proud about one thing, which was that I remained completely spoiler-free. I knew nothing about it. Mm-hmm. To the point where I was a little confused at the beginning, and then I remembered like 45 minutes in, I was like, I feel like I feel like the word basement was used once. Oh, yeah? Then I was like, oh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there it is. Um, I mean, I don't have anything to add to the discourse other than to say that this movie is an absolute masterpiece, and, and it's so funny, which is something that I wasn't keyed into. Sure. I was, I was ready to watch a, you know, a, a, uh, a keenly observed, penetrating psychological thriller. But this shit was hilarious. And the performances are so phenomenal and joyful. And it, it's the kind of movie... And honestly, I think one of the reasons why, again, from the way outside... Remember the, that Onion column, Jackie Harvey's The Outside View? Where the guy knew nothing about Hollywood and was <laughs> making right. observations? That's me. Um... I can fully understand why it has this momentum and, it, and why, it's find, why it's found mainstream appeal because the last movie that I watched, A, yes, too late, and B, somehow having protected myself from the hype, was Get Out. And the comparisons that I would make to the movies is both were exhilarating to watch. Sure. Both felt there's a kind of circling the drain or inevitability in thrillers or suspense films or, or whatever you want to call them that there's a version of it that keeps me away from a lot of movies like that where it feels either overly manipulative or nihilistic Mm -hmm. or aggressive. And then this is the opposite where everything, even as the circumstances go down, your enjoyment is ratcheting up and up and up because you're so thrilled and every leap he makes feels like the wind is at your back because you're making the leap too. You're ready for that next stage of this adventure or of this, you know, horrific story. Yeah. Just a total pleasure to watch. And, I, I, do we make movies about class anymore in this country, overtly, or are all movies about class because they're all just about two hundred million dollars spent on rich people playing dress up? I mean, I think that the the Fast and the Furious series is really well gets into it. It might. I'm, I, I am actually legitimately asking. <laughs> do I'm we not, make I'm, movies about class I, I'm not, in I'm America? Not, I'm not I mean, saying Ken Loach. Yes, they do. I the think a lot, there are a lot movies. of independent films that that do get into the issues issues of class, but I don't think that it's it's been really interesting to watch the reading of Parasite adds essentially a story about class from the States. You know what right. I mean? Like that, I feel like that is the thing that I've heard most from American critics is responding to, this is a story that we don't see a lot in America, if at all, yet it feels incredibly relevant. You know, of the ideas of like how ambition can turn into greed and turn into evil and the corruptive forces of money and the and like the idea of like transitioning across this class spectrum and how corrupting that is for people's souls and whether or not people are, you know, corrupt in the beginning or that something about being in touching distance of stability or wealth makes them corrupt is is, is amazing. Well, also that it doesn't, the humor makes an enormous difference. There's a joyfulness to the movie and to the performances. This family is hilarious and perhaps a little oversherry, but they love each other Mm -hmm. and they seem to enjoy being with each other and they're supportive of each other. And that alone makes a difference, as does the fact that this is not a movie about the nobility of their struggle. It's just a movie about them. Yeah. And, you, and you know, all the little pieces along the way, like, even from their relatively challenged position, they are still better than the guy who's pissing on the street and yes. ready to, yeah. you know— the scorn slides down the mountain, basically. I think one thing that I also really loved about this movie is that it is like the full realization of a city on, in a film. Mm-hmm. The, the way that that Bong kind of visualizes and situates you in a city, which I've never been to Seoul. I don't know that that's what Seoul is, looks like or is how it— well, Almost I, the entire movie was constructed on sets. That house doesn't exist. Right, but I just even mean like the—, the like even that the running through the city and the, the rain, rain when, yeah. and how it's like this descent into mm-hmm. kind of like, um, like these circles of hell, essentially, that ends up in like a river of shit. You know, yeah. it's like the way in which he kind of like— 
visualizes where these people live and even they have like this festering tumor in the bottom of their house. You know, like everybody has like mm-hmm. the way that there's like this physical manifestation of what happens when you achieve this in your life, when you acquire this much wealth, like and how and how what you have to build it on top of. I, I, I love the movie too. And and, and I, I mean this very sincerely, like this is take this with all the salt, all the grains. Uh, I'm uh, not even joking that I am certainly not a film scholar and I have not watched many movies recently, as people know. So I don't mean this to sound ignorant, but I did watch this movie relatively close to listening to Martin Scorsese on Fresh Air, which is a great interview that he did, that Terry Gross did with him. And he, he's telling, I mean, he did she did she ask him to listen to Adam Driver singing? <laughs> no, he sat through the whole thing. Um, he, this is something he talks about all the time and has been talking about for 40 years, but it was interesting to hear it in the con- recently again and then to watch this movie where he talks about his education, not just in cinema, but in the world through cinema. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing up in an age when the Apu films from India were shown on Channel 11, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Or, 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 or Ozu's films from Japan. And there's an international cinematic language being built brick by brick, film by film, and it gave him access both to, you know, the love of his life in cinema, but also the larger world. Sure. And thinking about Parasite as a very, as a absolutely global movie that is 100% a Korean film as well. Yeah. It's not Americanized, you know, there was always, and, and like the films of Wong Kar Wai, you know, 10, 20 years ago weren't quote-unquote, Americanized either, but a lot of the coverage of them and the way they were received or at least translated to us at the video store was like, this guy listens to jazz also. And yeah, gets and it. like this is like a his loving homage to great Hollywood romance just happens to be set somewhere the lens else. of Christopher Doyle and like, yeah, right. Exactly, and, and what I love about this movie is it's so vital and entertaining and alive and has something to say to everyone in the world about the world today, but it's so deeply rooted in place also. Mm-hmm. It felt like a, I, I'm struggling articulating it, but it felt both, individuated and specific, but also connected to a larger global story that is particularly relevant at this moment and worth chasing. So absolutely. Guys, hashtag five months ago, go see it. I loved it. (laughs) Um, Let's talk a little bit about that first episode of Picard before I let you go. Oh, yeah. So last week, from one of my better parking lots, I was talking about how excited I was to watch the show. I'm I'm in. I'm going to watch more of them. But I found the first episode fascinating, not entirely for the reasons that I wanted it to be. I mean, start with the top. Like, I love Patrick Stewart. I love his performance. I love him walking gruffly through vineyards. I love <laughs> that they had him sort of try and talk French. Uh-huh. Because the character's always been French. Yeah. With no evidence of that whatsoever in any other aspect of his life. Um, I, I was thrilled with all that, and it was really fun. Um, it's basically Logan without Logan. Well— but not even, I mean, you can, it's interesting that, that the comparison, and I think it's the, a right one to make, is to a relatively successful, classed up superhero movie. Yeah. One of the things that I, that I thought after watching this, and actually this is, um, this was also a, both of us, on the, my wife and I both watched this one together. And we, we had a similar observation, which is that there's a lot of stuff here that could be really interesting. And not just really interesting from a Star Trek sensibility, but from a TV sensibility. Particularly when you think about the fact that Star Trek, for many, I guess increasingly few, because I was going to refer to the original series, one of the things that was so resonant about the original series was that it was a really gripping um, mirror to society, but told through this this sort of genre lens, right? Mm -hmm. And and it dealt with all sorts of issues that were pretty forward-thinking for the 60s. Um, whether they were politics, class, race, and Star Trek was really able to navigate those that treacherous terrain in a really inspiring and uh, impactful way. And there are pieces in this show that suggest a passing interest in how our society might be reflected, mm-hmm. whether it's a loss of faith in institutions, cynicism, um, a sense of isolationism or xenophobia creeping in to what otherwise seems like a perfect society or an advanced society. But that's not, at least through one episode, that's not what the new Star Trek series is about. What the new Star Trek series seems to be about is the same thing that all late-stage massive IP franchises are about, which is themselves. Mm-hmm. And that didn't surprise me, I guess, but it, it, it left me feeling a little bummed out and less a little less engaged than I had hoped to be. Because ultimately, 
there's all this rich text for, especially with an actor like Patrick Stewart. Like, what is who he's he's Ahab now, or who who is he? I don't know. Sure. He, he's C- Colonel Kurtz. He could be anything, and they could tell any story they want about what hap- he once believed in something and what's happened and his relationship to it. But ultimately, I think it's about Data's daughter. Yeah, and and that yes. makes sense from an IP management perspective. But I wish these big franchises had the. Um, I don't know what, whether I want to say optimism or guts to be about something larger than themselves. Well, I think that often, this is a really good this is a really good point because I think that this series apparently because when I watched it I watched it and I enjoyed it and then I went and read about it and mm-hmm. I was like oh I guess there's a bunch of stuff that I forgot like I didn't know that the Romulan supernova is mentioned in the first J.J. Abrams Star Wars Star Trek. I didn't. So there's like some timeline or whatever. You know, I, I know that there's been these timeline splits. Uh, in Star Trek so that there can be things happening at the same time and, and, in different places. And that Chris Pine can play the same part. As... Sure. But I I found myself like sort of like, oh, there's a lot of stuff I need to go check because mm-hmm. I couldn't remember how Next Generation ended, so I had to go see that, and I had to go, to go figure out like— It ended with them playing cards. I know, like, and that was— started. I thought that this was like really well written. Mm-hmm. I think um, you can feel the touches of like a very literary writer's room and a really like smart and people who are incredibly like interested in making— Ordinary interactions in these sci-fi shows are can, can sometimes be very wooden, and mm-hmm. I think that they tried to make them as kind of human and, and as interesting as possible. I, I think the thing that I was really reacting to was the fact that I'm just conditioned to feel like at the end of a Star Trek episode to be like, that's that's the end of the episode. Right. And this was very much like, tune in next week. You could feel, or not even tune in next week, it was more like, this is also very bingy. You know, mm-hmm. like when you get to the end and you see for anybody who's, uh, I guess if you were listening to this, and you, I mean, this is obviously spoilers. It reveals something. But there's like, there's a board cube in space and you're mm-hmm. just kind of like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. You want you want to hit play for next week. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was not necessarily how Star Trek The Next Generation was designed when it was on TV. And no, it was, was a very big deal if there was ever a two-part episode. Yes. That felt like epic. Right. Um, otherwise, it was just reset, reset, reset. Um, this pilot, I mean, you can't tell anything from this, but... A lot of cooks in the credit kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, and Shabon, I think, Michael Shabon, the novelist, who is ultimately credited as showrunner for this season, not returning for the second season. It's already been renewed. I think he has a story by credit or something yeah, on this. Yeah, there's five people with story by credits in this. Um, so a lot of cooks getting this recipe put together. And then who actually did the baking and cooking? Well, we'll see, mm-hmm. you know. And so it, it'll be interesting to see if, if there's a, if his hand feels stronger in the episodes to come or if the franchise's hand feels sure. stronger. It's a pleasure to see, to, to watch, but I, I did have a little bit higher hopes for it. Although I do think Issa Briones, who plays uh, the mysterious offspring of Data, perhaps, is really good. Yeah, she was good. And I guess the question that it brings up is this idea of, well, two things, of franchise stewardship, which is something we talk about a lot. And I was thinking about these reactions I had to Picard when I was reading the news that Season two of The Mandalorian may help backfill Palpatine's survival. <laughs> like, because The Mandalorian, well, two things about it makes that, I make me believe that report. One, Mandalorian is successful mm-hmm. and people like it. So and people there's watch goodwill. It. Yeah. So put the thing that people didn't like, bake it into the cake that people liked, and maybe they'll accept it more. But um, it makes it a sturdy vessel to communicate this. But also remembering that all of these pieces, uh, whether you're branding them as like Picard, like the high-minded prestige version, or you know the big budget movie version that Noah Hawley's directing now, or the Starfleet Academy show that they're putting together, mm-hmm. they're all just pieces on the larger game board, and they're all there to support each other and to to sell something and to communicate a larger brand strategy, which is not really the fun way you want to think about this stuff. Did you see that we were I, we we had, we had said? Oh, Kenobi, like, it'll be fine. Yeah, the day we said it. And then I had to go record, like, a top to be yeah. like, man, they're they're redoing this. Not fine. No, it's not fine. Um, now, Ewan McGregor has come out since then and been like, it's actually not as bad as it sounds. And, like, we're, we're happy with it. Let's definitely going. trust him on that, yeah. on the red carpet. <laughs> um, the last thing I was going to say, just purely from a business point of view, because I did sign up for CBS All Access. Mm-hmm. I, got, I got mom reruns for days. Mm-hmm. I saw a report somewhere, or someone's voicing an opinion on Twitter that, it would make a lot Someone's of sense. voicing an opinion on Twitter. I know, it's weird. It happens. I also saw a movie. Uh-huh. Um, 
that it, CBS would be smart to do a broadcast window of some kind for Yeah, they did that shows. with Good Fight, where they re-showed the, they showed the first season on CBS. I strongly disagree with this and don't understand it at all. Not from a consumer perspective, because people should be able— I mean, I understand why a consumer would be like, why do I have to sign up for— you know, I, if, if I'm not interested in watching NCIS reruns forever, why do I have to pay extra to watch Star Trek? But the whole reason why Star Trek is— booming again and has Alex Kurtzman, uh, who has a you know long track record of making shows in charge of this universe, is precisely because CBS, Viacom, the whole larger company was like looking in their library and they're like, what do we have? Yeah. Okay. Star Trek is a thing that we have. So we got to keep it alive. We got to pump money into it, pump attention into it. And then how are we going to get people to, to be, start thinking of CBS as something you pay for? Well, well, what we'll do is we'll invest in the thing that has the most diehard fan base that will likely pay for it because they can't get it anywhere else. It's just a it's just a smart strategy, sure. You know, and I don't know of any sense of what the numbers are for something like DC Universe, which is a paid subscription yes. service that exists. Yes, has a reportedly very funny and good Harley Quinn cartoon run by a friend Justin Halpern. Um, I can't see it, but <laughs> I don't have DC Universe. But I think people do. And again, it's like they're, they're you're sort of teaching a generation of consumers to pay for certain things or to get used to paying for certain things by offering them something that they are passionate about. Mm-hmm. So why would they then put it on CP? Why would you? I don't really know, other than like diehard Christine Baranski fans respect and diehard Star Trek fans, what is the sales pitch for CBS All Access right now in the world? Sure. Especially if they're going to be like, but like, don't worry, because eventually it'll show up on linear. Yeah. Or we'll show it on Showtime or something, which, oh, which you have to pay for too. Boy, capitalism, am I right? Uh, We can wrap it up there, Parasite. Uh, (laughs) I've changed. (laughs) Andy and I obviously doing this show tonight. Uh, How are you feeling about it? I'm excited. I'm actually excited. You're excited. I have nothing to lose. Oh my god! You uh, monster. <laughs> well, this is like <laughs> Greenwald when he gets like nervous about flying, and I'm like, "You have a one in one thousand chance, man. Don't worry about it." There, it's you and the great Eva Anderson, my friend, who was the co-EP of the show and number two in the writers' room. She just has like this knack for like, like she's coming tonight, and if yeah. I see her before, we'll have a nice conversation. We'll chat about something. We'll see our friends in the writers' room, all of whom are coming. And then as I turn to go, she will grab me and say, hey, hey. And I'll say yes, and I'll turn. And then she'll, like, make a gesture like she has a secret to tell me. And then she'll whisper into my ear, you freaking out, man? It's all right. We can always turn it into NFC talk with me and Kim Dickens and Jay Ferguson. friends. So tonight, Andy and I are recording this live podcast. It will be available for listeners after the premiere of the first episode. of. When is that? February 6th. So that's going live. And yeah, we, I can't wait for people to see the show. I think it's really good. That's so nice. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. How many have you seen? I've seen three. Okay. All right. Yeah. Plus what you've shown me, like the other stuff you showed me. Uh, Plus what I saw get shot. I have to learn. Plus my cut that I've been working on separately. Release the Ryan cut. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for that to trend. Um, we'll talk to you guys on Thursday. Sure. Yeah. You want to talk about Outsider on Thursday? Well, you know, we'll see. Okay. I don't like to commit now. I know, because you got eight more Best Picture movies. And I don't know what I'm wearing. Jojo mm-hmm. Rabbit Pod coming Ten, at you. I don't even know what I'm wearing tonight. You know what I mean? I'm, you can't box me in. My conversation with Julia Lippman from Sundance is coming up next after a quick break. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Simply Safe. Simply Safe Home Security is like getting commercial grade enterprise level security for your own home. Think about the security Fortune 500 companies use. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break in, Simply Safe uses real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your home. Entry, motion, and glass break sensors guard inside. Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, and carbon monoxide poisoning. And it's all monitored 24 7 by live security professionals. You can set yourself up with no tools needed, or they can do it for you. And it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash watch. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Go now to simplysafe.com slash watch so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash watch. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Bank United. Bank United wants you to go for more. Enter your chance to win $54,000 if a team goes for and completes a two-point conversion during the big game on February 2nd. All you have to do is follow Bank United on Twitter and tweet at Bank United your answer for what you would do with $54,000 using hashtag GoForMore54 
Everyone has a chance to win. The more tweets you send, the more chances you have of winning. And if a team completes a two-point conversion, you could win. Again, follow Bank United on Twitter and tweet at Bank United your answer to what would you do with $54,000 using the hashtag GoForMore54. There is only one prize. Many may enter, but only one may win. Must be at least 18 years of age to enter. For official rules, visit www.goformore54.com. That's goformore54.com. Bank United, NA, member FDIC. Neither Twitter nor NFL entities have offered, administered, endorsed, or sponsored this sweepstakes in any way. All right, now I'm joined by Juliet Littman. We're recording here at Sundance TV HQ at Sundance at the Sundance Film Festival 2020. Hello. Gosh, Julia. Okay, so I think we'll probably wind up recording a couple of these over the course of the weekend. So yes. consider these dispatches from the front. Oh wow! Loose, loose, like just kind of like loose <laughs> conversations about what we've seen and heard here at Sundance. Hemingway ask. You know, so I was in this bar yesterday with a couple of our colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, not watching a movie. Uh, I was watching the Australian Open, actually. Oh, lame. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Shots at the Australian Open. <laughs> I, I just sorry. I take it back. <laughs> I support Australia. It's a tough time. And we were kind of we were talking about this thing that's been coming up a lot in the NBA this week. And I know you are a passionate NBA fan, which is basically like the uh, experience of watching it right now because a lot of it has become homogenized by the way fact that all these teams are shooting three pointers throughout the game. Right. So a couple of like anecdotal reports suggest that like people are just like looking at their phones more because like right. every offensive play is the same. But the thing that's kind of cool about going to like a film festival. So I was already thinking about like how we watch what we watch. But the thing that's cool about going to a film festival is that they really do put what you're watching at like the center of your attention. There's no getting away from like if you stand in line for an hour for something, if you rush into a theater and save your seat and grab yourself your popcorn and you're going right. to see the world premiere of some movie. Or, or like one of the first times it's being shown. Do you feel like you get more keyed into what you're watching that way? It's funny you wanted to discuss this because I, I have been thinking about like how weird it is. And I guess this is a common experience for many people who work in TV and film, but not me. I'm not at that level where you see something first. Mm-hmm. So you have very little I pre, like like, context. Pre, yeah, yeah, no right. context, like no preconceived notions of like what it's going to be. Like you just don't know any of that. So I, it definitely is like a just a different experience. It's kind of weird, actually. Yeah. I, and also, like, since we work at The Ringer, I feel like I always hear about stuff before I see it. Even Parasite, which I tried to not know anything about. Right. I knew it was, like, a great movie and people loved it and I didn't know why. So I guess it. I feel more dialed in because I'm sort of not sure what the touchstones are going to be. Sure. So, like, everything could be important. Yeah, and I think that also, I mean, I know you went and saw the Taylor Swift documentary, Miss Americana. Yep. And I went and saw uh, The Night House, which is a new horror movie from David Bruckner, who's been on The Watch before. And he had a, a movie on Netflix a couple of years ago called The Ritual and is directed at segments of VHS. And I think it's like a really phenomenal uh, horror filmmaker. But there's nothing like seeing like a horror movie at midnight with a, like 600, 800 people who are just like completely ready to get terrified and also like hit all the laugh lines and do all the jump scares. Like the jump scares in this movie were like, I think you could feel the entire floor bounce because people were all like, whoa. Oh my God. You know what That's I mean? Cool. But at the Taylor thing, were people singing along? Were people like... It's interesting. The crowd was heavily female. I don't know who Taylor Swift's audience is anymore. It's almost like she's so universal that I right. was... It was both women older than me, younger than me, and people cheered and like at various points like clapped for her. But it was definitely like a very pro Taylor squad. So I, I think it was like okay. also it was eleven hundred people at a theater at Salt Lake Community College, and it was like just a lot of people who had waited. traveled forty minutes probably yeah. to get to that movie, and also just like people from Salt Lake, I think, who just like right. wanted to see the movie. And it was just it's just interesting how there are still a few things that like bring people out, film festivals being one of them, and Taylor Swift being another, obviously. But it is interesting where it's like just people really devoted to one of two things, either the subject matter or like being there first. Being there first and 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 like having that experience like yeah. in the first wave. Yeah, like the last night, the movie that we saw was like kind of what you're talking about with like your experience with Parasite. It was like where I, I looked at the first line of the synopsis of the movie mm-hmm. and it stars Rebecca Hall. And I actually don't even want to give anything away. One of the things about film festivals that's tough is you don't always know when know. stuff is getting released or whether it's going to get released or right. whether it's going to go to a streaming service. And I, so I don't want to give anything away about it based on like it might be nine months, 15 months. There's stuff I saw at Texas in, in South by last year that's coming out now. Do you think that horror movies like need film festivals more than other kinds of movies because they need to like be able to test the reaction. And it seems like the movies that really take off have like a building swell around them. Well, like the, horror movies. It's a, it's a funny question because like there's like a there's a 
basement. There, where like the floor for horror is actually pretty high right. in terms of like. That's why there's so many of them. I think that there are just fans who like the visceral experience of being scared. So they will give a huge swath of horror movies a shot, especially with like a bunch of the different streaming services that are offering a lot of horror right now. And the fact that there are pretty routinely like maybe like nine to 15 horror movies a year getting into theaters and making a dent, you know, right. like they're still one of the more reliable box office performers. So I think that the thing that's interesting about the festival question you asked is that there is like a subsection of this festival of South by Southwest of a lot of movie festivals that's like the midnight stuff. Right. And I think it's actually like kind of a, like a, a complete like separate experience where it's like people who orient their entire nights around right. at midnight after going out and getting a few drinks and going to get dinner, we're going to go to this movie and be up at like 2, 2.30 talking about it. It's this totally different thing from getting up at 7.30 and hitting like six docks before lunch. I kind of wish I was that kind of person because it, it seems like a really unique movie-going experience, which is just really hard to have. I yes. mean, I'm obsessed with Netflix. Like, I love it. I feel like it's really additive in my life, but it's the complete opposite of what you're describing. It's yes. like generally something you you do at home with by yourself or with maybe like, you know, like one or two other people. And it doesn't really have like the community like event yeah. of it. and. I think that horror movies at a festival, I wish I was a part of it. Like, I'm too, I get too scared. But it just seems like an ideal way to be a part of movie culture in 2020 where you're able to, like, eventize it and also be genuinely surprised. Yeah, I think also, I mean, action movies used to probably be this in the 80s. You know, it's I, I think that horror has kind of taken on the, no matter how silly it seems or how boilerplate it seems at the end or how many tropes get repeated, there's something about getting scared in a dark movie theater that is like a pretty unique and special experience that is almost unreplicable in your home when you're right. like, uh, I'm going to hit pause and go get a water and, you know, take the clothes out of the dryer and then like look at my phone for a second. Like when you're trapped in a horror movie theater, like that's the thing is like nobody gets up during horror movies. You know what I mean? Like you, you people can't afford to like miss that. Yeah, you one can't or miss a moment. Things. And there were a couple of things last night where I was like, you know, it was this kind of cool theater that they have here at Sunday. It's uh, called the library, which literally is in a library. Oh, that's uh, awesome. And it felt almost more like a school assembly than it did a, like, traditional movie theater experience. But that almost played into the kind of offness of the movie itself, uh, which is very isolating and paranoid and strange. Right. Uh, so it was just, like, a very, very cool experience. And Rebecca Hall is really good in it. I feel like her career is just not as good as it could be. Well, I think that she has made just decided to like be in charge of it now. Right. Uh, I think that she's kind of like made decisions. She's an executive producer on this movie, and I, th I get the impression that like her lending her name to it and becoming part of it like helped get it made. I love Rebecca Hall. She's great. She's I great in this movie. She's got. She, there's a couple of scenes in here where she does stuff that is like, oh, like this is probably like upper one or two percentile, ninety <laughs> ninth percentile of acting for it, horror movies yeah. or in general. Uh, no, just in general. Like, there's a moment where she has to see something for the first time that I'm not going to get into that you're just like, oh my God, that's actually like probably the first time I've ever seen somebody react to that, that in this way. Would she have a better career if Emily Blunt didn't exist? Oh, like, she, you think Emily Blunt is like, like the Rebecca Hall correction. marker correction? Yeah. I just feel like... I don't know. You want Rebecca Hall to be Mary Poppins? Is that like your dream for her? I don't know if I wanted Emily Blunt to be Mary Poppins. Right. That wasn't my dream but for her. this is what we're saying, right? I'm just thinking like a quiet place and like sort of other other movies where you need like a really likable, really talented British woman. Quasi-British woman. Yeah. I feel like Rebecca Hall No, and no Emily shots Blunt, to either of them. I like no, them both a lot. I, I think I love both of them. But there is a weird thing that is like, especially since... There's so much work for British actors in America where like yeah. we don't even blink when that like it's a cop show set in Detroit and nine of the people are either British or Australian. Yeah. Rebecca Hall is quasi-British. Like she's probably played more Americans than she's played British at this point. Also, when I think about the prestige, I feel like Scarlett Johansson's fake British accent was way more aggressive than Rebecca Hall's real British accent. Right. And I feel like she's generally like an understated actress, which is probably part of the reason why I'm like, why isn't her career better? She's, she is actually having a great career. She's just not that showy. Yeah. I mean, she's in like, she's in many iconic movies, including the prestige and Iron Man three and whatnot, I guess. I want to circle back to something you were saying about um, the sort of being here in the sort of first floor of a hype cycle for mm -hmm. a movie, because there's two, there's basically two different experiences. There's one where you see something that is already a hot property. So like Zola was like that. I think, I think the Hillary doc series is like that. I think, um, I think obviously the Taylor doc is like that. There's a bunch of other stuff here that I think is going to be like, 
on-ramped right into like mainstream culture pretty fast. And then there's stuff where it's just like, I wonder if this will find a home. I know. And I wonder, or I wonder if this will catch on at all. And that that's one of the more remarkable things about festival experiences is that you're just like, wow, I really hope somebody sees this. You right. Know? And like in the economy of streaming, does it just make sense for like Hulu or whomever to just like take a flyer on a movie that was like good and maybe does is not like the one of the top five movies coming out of Sundance, but like, is there more of a life for a lot of these movies now as a result of just, there just being more places for them to go? Well, here's my big curiosity. Cause like if you're on a bus here or if you're in a bar, or if you're walking down the street, you're just hearing people talking about acquisitions and where it might wind up, whether it's on one of these streaming services or in a limited release that then goes digital to like iTunes and stuff like that. And there's just a lot of discussions about distribution and platform and stuff like that. The one thing that I'm starting to feel a little bit as we kind of go full maximalist with all these services, and I think that like you and I talk about this sometimes with Netflix, where I think you and I are very good friends who talk to each other all the time and are fully capable of once a week of mentioning something on Netflix that neither has ever heard of. Right. I also just want to note this morning, I was reflecting on how you're such a gracious friend as I think that I <laughs> I use you to talk through how I'm feeling all the time <laughs> and to be like, I'm turning the page on this feeling and I'm starting a new one. Chris, just want you to know. Yes. So, it's like, that, yeah, I'm your, I am your, the record of like your my emotional journal. state. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. But, and that also includes having to hear me like discover cheer right. or discover the circle or... I like just all I want to do is talk about how I feel about the Aaron Hernandez documentary <laughs> or like and all that stuff. Also, I'm like a big weirdo who just like goes watches home Netflix. Watches yeah. Netflix. But I think that we're kind of reaching a point where you ask if, you know, whether it's good for like a Hulu or somebody to go out and buy 10 movies here and just be like, here they are. No. I think it might even be better for somebody or something to buy 10 movies and be like, we're presenting like basically the Sundance Film Festival for everybody. Right. Here are 10 movies that we bought. You know, you That's almost cool idea. get to feel like you're virtually experiencing the festival. Maybe they build in some of the kind of Q&As and stuff like that that you you experience when you're watching a movie here because often like the stars and the directors are there. They're presenting their work. Right. They're actually quite like, it's quite lovely because they're like really nervous. They're like, yeah, oh my God, like, like this is the first, first time. time. Like Bruckner last night was like, I just finished this. This is really weird. Like it wow. wasn't like this has been sitting on a shelf for a while. But I think that there must be a way for us to start editorializing this stuff a little bit better. Not necessarily curating and hiding and and you know uh, merchandising stuff that way, but like it just is a shame when you find out like oh this movie's been like somewhere buried in Amazon Prime or somewhere buried in Netflix for like a year and I thought I didn't even know it, it got a release. I don't know if this happens with Sundance movies as much, but Festival movies, particularly like I think rom coms that are smaller and just don't get the same big budget. Like there's the um that Jack Quaid one on Hulu about the wedding date. Plus one. Plus one. Yes, which like, you disliked. I did not like, correct. Yes. And it's just not my tempo, <laughs> as they said in a famous Sundance movie one time. Um <laughs> but I think those movies, like, they do get lost in a streaming service. But that's kind of what you're saying is really smart and kind of fast like music festivals have started doing that uh -huh. where obviously Coachella is fully on YouTube people waited for Beyonce's set a few years ago right. and then it was like that could be enjoyed by a, the mass audience that loves Beyonce you didn't only have to be there obviously it's really different when you actually are there but it is a cool idea to like talk about opening it up and and also like why couldn't it be in real time well like, it's tough it's like the I, I think that obviously you buy a movie here this is my like complete like outsider perspective but it seems like what happens is People buy a, a documentary or a feature here, and then they turn around and they say, okay, so how are we going to sell this to the public? Like, what what's the best arc for this thing? Do we want to put it in theaters? Do we want to put it in just a few theaters and then do digital, like, in a week or whatever? And I get all that. But, like, there's something about, like, when something comes out of a festival and, like, you've got a couple thousand people talking about it, that might be, like, the loudest it's going to get for that movie. Right. And maybe the best thing to be, maybe the best thing possible for some of these smaller movies, like a plus one that's not going to go play at an Arclight or, like, a right. Glendale movie theater, is just to get it out there while everybody's talking about it. Right. Because there is a disconnect right now. If you look on any of, like, the, your favorite movie sites right now or any of your favorite movie people's Twitter feeds right now, they're just, like, banging out, like, reviews right now. Right. Because they're doing it because they're, like... That's the job. It's like, I write about this movie when I see it, not when it's going to be available. And then we'll recirculate my review or I'll write it again. We do it at The Ringer, too. Like, when we send people to festivals. Yeah. We have them write, like, Toronto Film Festival recaps. Naaman does that. Even though those movies, like, are not coming until Christmas right. sometimes. 
But in some ways, I think that that moment is actually the best moment for people to see it. Right, because there's the most amount of excitement, there's the most amount of interest. And also, I think more recently, bigger movies premiere at some of the festivals where kind of unexpected hits used to emerge. But like, when I think of like the Venice Film Festival, which is not a small one, but like in general, I think it is, it does track more artsy than just mass movies. Right. Like, in 2018, A Star is Born, like, totally dominated that. Right. And, like, I can't name another movie out of that was, like, really big at that festival. Yes, yes. And I and it, it, it would be cool to, like, find more ways to, like, well, that had like the, the that had, like, the two-step process of, like, the trailer came out and instantly became, like, a kind of social media phenomenon. Yeah. And then it actually screened and people were like, oh, it's my God, this good. is actually really good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting situation. You know, I I I think that there was I know Sean and Amanda talked about this on the big picture that came out on Friday, but the idea of like like festival feelings, like basically like your festival high that you have. Right. I that the thing that really that one time that ever happened to me was when Sean and I went and saw Longshot mm. at South by, and it was like the kind of centerpiece movie. I think it was like the big premiere movie at South by Southwest, and. um we saw that movie and I was like, that movie is going to make $150 million. Like, this is going to be the biggest comedy of the summer. And it's like a sweet rom-com, but it's also got like so many jokes. And it's actually got like a weirdly like compelling action plot. And it obviously swan dived, man. Yeah, like, it, it did, did not. not do well. Now, I don't know whether or not that movie would have been better if it came out on Netflix three weeks later, like this Taylor Swift documentary right. is going to. It is smart that they're doing it that way. Also, like just as like someone talking about this stuff, it makes more sense for us to talk about it right now because it's like, this is a preview for you. And then, you know, even if you're not going to listen right now, come back in a week. Like a man sure. and I discussed this sure. or whatever. I think another movie that was like that was Booksmart that also like had a... But, yes. But, but that, that had a longer life. And now it's... it And, and I read an Olivia Wilde interview today where she was like, it just seems like Booksmart has now like left left the farm. Like people now love that movie. Like Greenwald texted me the other day and was like, I think Booksmart's best movie I've seen last year. I mean, he saw four movies, but <laughs> it's like, he, he texted me and was just like, I love Booksmart so much. Like Andy was completely outside of the hype cycle for Booksmart. That whole like, go see Booksmart yeah. in theaters, support it. Like it's now like become the movie that I think they were always hoping it would be, which would be like a Days to Confuse and a Fast Times and like a, a high school movie that people of all ages are really enjoying on their own terms. It, there's definitely a difference between festival movies that people love at festivals and then are best suited to be watched at home, which yes. I think is like kind yes. of a Days to Confuse and a Book Smart. Great movies, but like I didn't really need to see Book Smart in the theater. What and do that, you think you do need to see in the theater? Is well, it, I think the horror this horror experience right. is a really cool one. When there's like a communal aspect to it, I think it makes a big difference. I also think movies that are really emotional, that makes a big difference too. To be like in, in the, the dark theater. Yeah. yeah, where you're sort of, I think the communal but anonymous experience of experiencing a movie that is really heightened, whether it's really scary or really sad mm-hmm. or really funny, like the kind of grander environment for the grander feelings sure. really tracks. Yeah, the more sweeping, the more people you want to yeah, be around. But I just think cult classics in general, I've never been like, I need to go to the New Beverly to see one of my favorite movies that I've seen 15 times. But that's also just personal taste. So to bring it all the way back to the experience of watching sports yes. and, and like the kind of like some somewhat like sports is essentially there. I think you can watch it, like analyze every single play and every single frame, or you can have it on as like the thrum in the background that you check in on when you feel yeah. like you are experiencing like an action point. Like for you, when you're watching, um, like, would you, would you watch something really emotional at your house? Like, do you no. think that, but do you think that that is eventually where we're going to go is what I guess I'm going to ask. I hope not. Because like my most emotional movie experiences of like the last five years that I can think of off the top of my head, Lady Bird and Manchester by the Sea, two movies that I fucking love and Both in the wept at. Seen one time, feel like I remember every line, don't want to watch them again. Love seeing You don't want to dial up Manchester by the Sea again? <laughs> It's like, want to go back to the house listen, we're staying at and I, just like let it rock? I listen to the music all the time. Do you really? It's a beautiful score. God, you have such weird taste. Why do you listen to so many movie scores? I love movie scores. I've also been listening to the Marriage Story score a lot. I know you have. A lot. I know you have. I don't know. I find the music is enough to like transport me back to the emotional state of having seen the movie without having to relive the trauma of Manchester by the Sea or Lady Bird. <laughs> but I think sports, by the way, is a little different. You... Because it's live action, and I love theater, so it's similar. Yeah. Feeding off the singular experience, like, this is happening right now, and it cannot be replicated, is so special. Unless it's, like, a bunch of people who are watching illegal streams, and they're, like, five minutes behind, and they're, like, wait, why did my Twitter It's just not the same. Like, I went to a really good Clipper-Celtics game in, like, November or December, 
And it was kind of boring. And then it got really good in the second half. And it felt like being in a playoff game. And yeah. it was like so thrilling. And like similarly, it was the ladybird of basketball games, is what you're it saying. It was the ladybird of basketball games. And then like when you go to see like a musical or, or a play or some kind of like live show, like it was amazing. Like I went to a mentalist show recently. I saw Darren Brown on, oh, yeah. on Broadway in New York. He's back in England. Go check it out if you're in London. All our UK listeners. I love that. I absolutely <laughs> I had a great time. It was an amazing like in-person experience. But you wouldn't want to watch the Netflix special of it. No, and I definitely I was gonna say he's all there's a lot of his stuff on YouTube. I've no interest, hard pass. So hmm. there's just like some stuff that I think is enhanced by the experience. And I think like being at Sundance is there's a real like, experience to it. Like it feels like a, a movie, you know, it's a movie festival. Everybody's walking somewhere to go see something. And or that some, is, yeah. it's almost like being in a city. I mean, it is like yeah. being in a city where the only thing that matters is going to the movies. And that's like great for people, for industry people and for complete movie nerds and, and where, the, where the two meet. But I do think there's a lot to be said for the filmmakers and to immediately have their films available. Should, should I pivot to like ostentatious TV guy where I just like, yeah, I was going to go see uh, Taylor Swift doc, but I'm just going to go home and watch Narcos. Got to support TV. It does, you know, make makes you wonder, could there be a TV festival? <laughs> I couldn't help but wonder. I couldn't help but wonder, could there be a TV festival? All right, Carrie Bradshaw. We'll see. We'll see. Juliet, thanks for joining me. Always. The Watch was brought to you by AT&T, reminding you that when it comes to wireless networks, just okay is not okay.